Welcome to the Pod Control Podcast, brought to you by Red Hat. PodCTL is your source for containers, Kubernetes, OpenShift, and all things cloud native. Hello, Kubernetes community, and welcome back to season two of the PodCTL podcast. In this episode, we're going to look at episode three. In the past, we have last couple of episodes, we looked at what is Kubernetes, kind of the core architecture. We've looked at sort of what problems it solves and what types of applications can run on Kubernetes. And here in episode three, we're going to look at how Kubernetes is created, a little bit of, you know, kind of how the sausage is made, if you will. Now, uh, for those of you that have been around open source for a long time, a lot of this will be old hat. And for those of you that are new to open source or maybe just new to Kubernetes, uh, we're going to introduce just some new concepts to you about how it's built uh, as a piece of uh, open source software or as an open source project and some of the things that are around it as sort of ancillary projects and so forth. So let's go ahead and dive right into it. You know, when Google first uh, created Kubernetes, let's call it 2014-ish time frame, 2014, 2015-2015, you know, they had created the original project. Um, they were planning to open source it. And they did a couple of things really, really smart. They realized that they wanted this software to be widely used. They didn't want it to just be used uh, by Google. Otherwise, they didn't need to open source it. The second thing they realized was they wanted to uh, make sure that other people in the community, whether those were corporations or individuals, could contribute to the project, uh, offer suggestions, you know, have open communication, uh, fix bugs, all sorts of things, documentation. And so you know, having an open source community with an open license around the software was really important. And then given the size of Google and, uh, you know, their maybe lack of lots of experience or lack of kind of a portfolio of having done open source for a long time or at least large projects, they wanted to make sure that other contributors felt comfortable working with this project and not worried that Google was going to keep it for themselves or, you know, you know, try and you know do some things that would advantage just them versus the rest of the community. So they did a number of very smart things in the very early days. Obviously, they uh, they created an open license that allowed anybody to work on it and be able to use the software freely. So that was important. The second thing was they went off to a number of companies and a number of uh, well-known individuals in open source communities, and they said, we'd like you to work with us. Uh, we'd like you to actively work with us. We'd like to make you contributors and maintainers of the project. And so um, they did some very good things in terms of just open source community uh, citizenship and, uh, and maintenance, just to make sure that people felt welcome uh, working on the project. And then the third thing they did was they said, we need to make sure that uh, people aren't worried uh, about the long-term longevity uh, or stability of the project. And so what happened was something was created, a new entity was created called the Cloud Native Computing Foundation or the CNCF. And this was a foundation that was born out of the Linux Foundation. Um, and it was a, a governance organization. Its job was to maintain the project, uh, maintain the sort of um, oversight of the project, uh, be the guardian, if you will, of things like trademarks and other stuff to make sure that the project was um, you know, properly worked on, properly maintained, um, that anything representing the project could be you know, equally shared amongst all the contributors and members of, and so forth. And so, um, you know, Kubernetes in and of itself is an open source project. Uh, the code is available on GitHub. We'll put some links in the repo so you can go take a look at it if you will. Um, there are literally hundreds of both companies and individuals who contribute to the software on a regular basis. So there is software being contributed to Kubernetes uh, on a daily basis, uh, probably literally thousands and thousands of lines of code. But let's sort of break down sort of behind the scenes what goes on with Kubernetes. So um, within the CNCF, there is a um, 
couple of kind of governance boards, if you will, technical advisory boards and so forth that are looking uh, at the project, making sure that it is um, well designed, um, that architectural discussions are happening and people are thinking about, you know, if I want to introduce something new, what's that going to do to the broader architectural space? And that's staffed by a number of very, very senior engineers from different companies. And then uh, within, you know, as Kubernetes has expanded, as we talked about in the first couple of episodes, uh, you know, there are lots of different aspects of it that need uh, attention, need, you know, kind of regular attention. And so there are working groups or what are called SIGs. Um, and those groups are broken out into different functionalities. So in some cases, it's how does Kubernetes work with a cloud provider? How does Kubernetes work on nodes? How does it work on security? How does it work on scaling? How does documentation work? Lots and lots of groups. There's probably 40 plus groups um, that are broken out to work on different things. And uh, again, um, there are leads for these groups, but you know anybody can work in the groups. Anybody can contribute to them. They have regular weekly meetings or biweekly meetings that are always open to the public. Uh, the notes are always made public and they're all out in GitHub. So you can take a look at those. And then the process for actually creating Kubernetes is, um, you know, there is now a process in which people sort of come up with, the, the leads come up with, what do we think we want to put in the next couple of releases? And so they're sort of planning out a roadmap, as you would expect for any project. Uh, they start to scope that roadmap. They figure out, you know, what can get done in a given amount of time. And then basically on a quarterly basis, about every three months, a new version of Kubernetes will come out. Um, Kubernetes began with 1.0. Each subsequent release has been 1. something, so 1.1, 1 1.2, 1 1.3. Um, we are up to 1.18 now as of April 2020. Uh, 1.19 will come out, 1.20. Um, so about every three months, give or take, and pretty much on a regular cadence, a new version of the upstream open source Kubernetes project comes out. Now, within that project, there are a number of aspects that people, um, sometimes they understand, sometimes they don't understand, because People are often used to software coming out and being, you know, super feature rich, lots and lots of things, and they're really excited to get the new features. So what Kubernetes does um, is they try and find the right balance between consistency of delivery. So every three months there is a new release. Um, they want to make sure that there is a, a number of stable uh, features that are in there that people can use and feel comfortable using in production. They've been tested, they've been well vetted and so forth. But then they also want to balance that with new capabilities coming out that, you know, maybe, you know, sort of close to ready for production or it's totally brand new and allow people to, you know, go off, test them, experiment with them, see if it's what they wanted, make sure it was the right design. So in any given release, um, the release itself will be, you know, a numbered release, call it 1.18, for example. There will be a number of GA features. So general availability features are considered things that you should feel comfortable putting into production. Um, they've been well tested. They've been at one point in time an alpha feature and then a beta feature, typically at least one or two releases before. Now they've graduated to GA and you should feel relatively good about putting those into production. There's a second class of features that are called beta. And as you would expect, they are more mature. Uh, the beta features have more or less, um, you know, kind of stabilized on how they're going to interact with the API. Um, they're not necessarily recommended for production unless you kind of want to take on the burden of dealing with non-GA stuff in production. Uh, but they're getting more stable. Um, there will typically be uh, more beta features in a release than there will be GA features. Um, and again, they're, you know, you sort of are understanding that it's very likely 
that in the next release or the next two releases, those beta features will probably be made GA. Now, that's not a guarantee. They don't always move from beta to GA in one release or two releases, but that's kind of the cadence that the Kubernetes teams that are developing it try to work on the release teams. The third sort of category are alpha features. And these are ones that are brand new. Um, these are things that are, you know, have been just recently developed and pushed into the mainstream. Maybe they had been developed off on a separate project, but they've been now moved into the main project. Um, they're very new. Uh, the guidance in essence is you probably shouldn't run these in production. And there's no guarantee that like the API or the characteristics of the feature may not change. So you have to be very careful with the alpha features. Um, some people like to use them and play around with them just to sort of get experiment with them, understand them. Uh, but you should understand that you probably shouldn't build big mission critical enterprise kind of process and, and things around it because there's no guarantee that that feature will move to beta. There's no guarantee that the, the API interaction will not change significantly. Um, and there's no guarantee that it will go to GA. So kind of understand um, a few features are in uh, GA in every release, a few more beta features, and then usually a larger number of alpha features. Now, um, it's important to remember, again, with open source software, uh, unlike proprietary or vendor-driven or cloud computing software, um, there is no inherent sort of SLA with it. There is no inherent support built into it. Um, it's software that you can freely download and uh, then you support it, right? You can support it through you know, individual expertise. You can support it through Slack and mailing lists and other types of things, but it's, it's community supported. So just sort of keep that in mind. Now, um, the other thing about the software is the software is freely available um, in terms of how it's created and where it comes from. Um, there are statistics if you are really interested in, you know, maybe which company or which group uh, was contributing more to that area. You know, we don't typically like to get into, you know, which one does the most, um, you know, lines of code types of things aren't always the greatest indicators. They're good indicators. They give you a sense of, you know, how much an individual or an individual company or whatever is participating in the community, but it doesn't necessarily tell you, you know, the whole picture. So be very cautious about that. We will put some things in the show notes about how the CNCF represents some things. Some things that people do do in terms of understanding is, uh, you know, where is the leadership? You know, maybe that's where uh, they should be going for some expertise to ask questions or try and get a new feature uh, contributed or added. Um, it might be that you want to work with a specific company because you feel like, okay, I have a good relationship with them. They might be able to help me get certain capabilities pushed in the marketplace and so forth. They might be able to help you get started actually making contributions as opposed to just being somebody requesting a feature. So all those things should be taken into consideration um, for you know where Kubernetes comes from. Um, as we've mentioned, it is a project that's been around for a long time, um, now for four, you know, five, five years or so. Um, a lot of different companies contribute to it. A lot of different individuals contribute to it. And there is a fairly well-defined process in terms of the frequency of releases, um, how new features get put into place, how well they're documented. Um, and uh, the Kubernetes community has, has gotten pretty good about pulling that all together. So I think we're going to wrap that up. We will talk in later releases or later episodes of the show about kind of all the other projects that aren't Kubernetes but often associated with Kubernetes. We'll cover that in a later show. So with that, uh, in episode three, we're going to kind of wrap it up. In episode four, we're going to look at, um, you know, where do we get Kubernetes once we want to actually use it? How does it get, you know, where does it get released? Um, how much you go about uh, acquiring it or downloading it and so forth. And so we'll talk about the different ways that you can go about getting Kubernetes once it's released. So thank you all for listening to the PodCTL podcast. Feedback is always welcome. And we will talk to you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.
Thank you for listening to the Pod Control Podcast. You can find everything about the show at podctl.com or at podctl on Twitter.